The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we're grateful that you have called us together in this place at this time. Just, Lord, a coalition of people who are seeking to be yours. And we would ask, God, that you would continue to open up our eyes and our hearts to the transformative work of the soul that you have begun in us. And Lord, we confess that none of us have arrived where we want to be, and we have all failed at some level this week, and we receive and accept your healing and forgiveness. And God, we would ask that you create within us the kind of hearts that lead out in both actions and words to bring others into that healing. God, that we would be people who are known for the love we share together and extend to the world. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you, and guiding us and others towards you, Lord, as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask this in the name of our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I wanted to share with you this um, event that happened in my life several months ago but I didn't give a whole lot of thought to until pretty recently. Uh, Back this fall, um, I was at an event in Dallas. I was speaking at an event there, and I did the Friday morning keynote. So it's this weekend event, and they had a session Thursday night, and kind of gets kicked off Friday morning. And they'd asked me to do this Friday morning keynote, but I didn't have anything to do uh, the rest of the weekend while I was there. So they told me, you'll do your thing on Friday morning, and then we'll just set you up a table and you can do a book signing and just bring a bunch of your books and people can come and get in line and sign books. And I thought, okay, I won't have anything else to do there. Um, I'll just do that. So um, I'm setting up for this book signing. And the thing is that I brought with me um, a friend of ours who's also in our small group, a young woman named Ashley. And Ashley was going to go with me and help me do this this book, actually, um, there are a few things in life that I hate worse than the drive from Houston to Dallas. Um, for one, when you're done with it, you're in Dallas. Um, so um, I flew, and I just had Ashley drive and bring all the books. So if, if there's no other reason to be in a small group, it's to have other people carry your stuff for you from place to place. So my, my plane was delayed getting there uh, Thursday night, and so um, we're going to this event, and this event was connected to uh, the uh, denomination that I grew up in, Churches of Christ. And so I still do a lot of things, and most of my friends there went to Church of Christ College, and so Ashley was going to get this great full immersion into the Church of Christ world, which I thought was going to be really helpful for her. Uh, So my plane was delayed, and so she sent me this text because she had already gotten there, and she sends me a text I get as soon as I land, and it says, "Um, is all the worship going to be a cappella? And I was like, yes, it is. And you, if you didn't know how to sing when you got there, you will when you leave. So we we set up the table, and I'm trying to get Ashley coached up on how to do a proper book signing because she is young and energetic and way cooler and more awesome than I am. I said, we'll do this. You will sit here and we'll form the line and people can come to you to buy a book. And when they buy a book, they'll just slide over to me and I will sign the book and we'll talk because 
Another thing that you need to know about Churches of Christ, if you're unfamiliar with um, our fellowship of churches, my fellowship of churches, is that everybody in Churches of Christ is only about four degrees removed from everybody else in Churches of Christ. And you talk to somebody for about five minutes, um, you can pretty much piece together like how you know them. Like it's so like like, um, Chris, who was just up here playing a bass in the band, like his brother-in-law is on staff at a church in Atlanta where my mother is on staff at that same church. So we are all very much connected. And so you just talk with people and in a couple of minutes you put together how you know everybody. So I tell Ashley, people come to you and they wanna buy a book and everybody who buys a book, you just ask them, only one? While I talk to people. And so a couple of people came by and she, they would say, I want to buy a book. And Ashley would say, only one. And a couple of them would buy two or three, which is really great because all the money from that book goes to, to Harvey, Harvey Recovery. So we're doing this and I'm sitting there talking to a guy, signing a book, and we're sort of chatting. And I see a guy standing in line to buy a book and I recognize him. But I can't put together exactly where I recognize him from. And this kind of happens a lot, and you've gone to school with people's brothers, cousins, aunts, uncles, all that sort of thing. Um, and he cuts up to the front of the line, and I'm still talking to other people who are before him. And he says, oh, I want to buy a book. And Ashley says, only one. And he goes, okay. And he buys like two or three and then slides over and begins talking to me as I'm signing books. And I realize as we're talking where I know him from. But I didn't know him first from like those kind of connections that I would normally put together, like, oh, where are you from? Oh, you know, this person, you go to, you worship at this church, all of that sort of thing. I realized that I recognized him like from the news and not like from the local news, but like from the national news and not just for a little bit of time, but for a long time he was in the news but I didn't really know how to bring up how and where I knew him from in the news. So we just kind of kept talking and then he finally moved on and the next person came over and I leaned over to Ashley and I said, do you know who that is? No. I said, that's Kent Brantley. And this is where I felt really stupid because Ashley is a nurse and Kent Brantley is a doctor and she would have been really intrigued to meet and talk to Kent because Kent is not just any doctor. Kent was a medical missionary to Liberia during the Ebola outbreak and Kent contracted Ebola and was flown back to the United States and was treated in Atlanta, my my hometown of Atlanta, um, at Emory University with the CDC. And then after that, Kent became like a pincushion because they took vials and vials and vials of his blood because he's the first person to ever not die from Ebola. This is a picture of Kent here that year when he came back. He was the person of the year, Times person of the year. And this is a picture of him and his wife, Amber, with then President Obama. But what's fascinating about how Kent contracted Ebola 
is that he went to Liberia to treat the Ebola outbreak there. But it was an odd set of circumstances that led to him actually getting Ebola. What was happening in Liberia is that people were getting sick and going to the hospital with what they thought were rather um, minor concerns. Like they might have a high fever for several days and they really had Ebola, but they didn't know it. But they would go into the hospital and die in the hospital. They'd go in the hospital and just not come out. So people thought that there was something happening in the hospital that people were dying in the hospital because of the hospital. So people like Kent and others had to go out town to town, village to village, and win back the confidence of people because people had started to come to the hospital and take their relatives, their friends, out of the hospital, out of these sterile environments, back to their hometowns, and it was making the outbreak go faster and faster and spread wider and wider. So they would have to go into these villages and win back the confidence of people, which meant that they were more susceptible to Ebola themselves. And I tell you that story about Kent because of the weird events, these three things that were happening in Liberia at the time. People were dying. Nobody knew why. At least none of the townspeople, the villagers, knew why. And the people who were charged with bringing healing and care appeared to be the problem and not the solution. People were dying and didn't know. People were dying. No one knew why. And the people who were supposed to be bringing the solution appeared to be the problem. And I tell you that because in your experience and what we are experiencing right now in this cultural moment in America is that when people think about all of our problems, all of our problems in the culture, all of our problems in the world, and they think about people like you and me, people um, who are part of churches, people who are Christians, We have 40 years of research now telling us that they think that we are the problem, not the solution. I was pastoring at a church downtown the week of 9-11. And that Wednesday night, not Sunday morning, Wednesday night, our church building was packed with people because someone thought that we might have a solution. And now, when something happens in our culture, in our world, in our country, hardly anybody thinks Christians are the solution. And you know this already, because you have friends and family members, coworkers, folks that you meet in your neighborhood or are part of some organization, That when they look at you and the things that you believe, the things that you say are important to you, they think you're part of the problem, not the solution. Like several years ago, I read Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. And the book really wasn't about God. It was about Christians. And so if you've been around Ecclesia for a long time, 
You know that from the very first days, we have been a community of people who have been dedicated to being part of the solution and not part of the problem. And that's why we do some of the things that we do and the way that we do them. That's why uh, we were so dedicated and have been so dedicated to Harvey Relief after last year's hurricane. That's why we do things like Advent Conspiracy, where we raise money to build clean water drinking wells around the world. That's when a couple of weeks ago, right before Christmas, uh, when HISD realized that they had all of these homeless students who didn't have coats, that, that's why we're one of their first phone calls. That we're, we're dedicated to being part of the solution. And it's an incredible, beautiful, powerful thing when we can wrap our arms around something, when we can pool all of our resources together, when we can work on something together. And Ecclesia has done that for a long time. But you know as well as I do that when you're having conversations with people, they're not thinking about all the things that we do together. They're thinking about that Christian leader that someone put on television who gave that interview or who got on Twitter and said the most heinous thing that you could possibly say. They're, they're thinking about televangelists or evangelical leaders who, when there's a thing like a hurricane, will tell you, well, you know what? It's these people over there who are responsible. They're thinking about the way that someone, when they were at their lowest, made them feel they're thinking about Christian people who have one set of moral guidelines for these people and a different set of moral guidelines for these people or who 20 years ago would have said this is wrong but 20 hours ago seemed to be pretty okay with it. They're thinking about Kent Brantley. Because some of you who remember when all of that happened will recall that there were some very prominent people in our country when they decided to bring Kent back to the United States for treatment who said, I don't care why they went over there or what they were doing. They should stay over there and not come back for treatment because we don't want what they have over there coming over here. I had a good friend in Dallas who was taking her daughter for treatment at a hospital in Dallas, and it just happened to be one of the hospitals where one of the other American um, <clears throat> medical workers who had come down with Ebola had been sent. And she decided she wasn't going to take her daughter because she didn't want to be within miles of an Ebola patient. And there seems to be something just in the bloodstream of humanity. Regardless of how natural it is, that we just have this reflex for a me first. To think about me first in almost every circumstance. We think about me first in our relationships. We think about me first in our politics. We think about me first when it comes to our children, though we don't even want to admit a lot of times that that's what we're thinking. That there's a great deal of concern warehoused in the human heart about self-protection and getting the things that we want in the way that we want them when we want them. And so I was at this book signing 
And I'm sitting talking to my friend Don. And we're talking about what he and I am seeing in the world. And, and Don is a uh, white guy in his late 50s, early 60s. I've known him um, for a long time. And he looks at me and he says, Sean, you know, when I think about my life, I have a black son, a gay son, and a daughter who's a preacher. That's pretty much the trifecta. He said, here's what I've learned, that in a me-first world, the answer to a me-first world is to become a person with a reflex to love first. If you were here last week, um, Erica kicked off what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks at Ecclesia, both here and downtown, is we're going to spend some time talking about love and what it means to love. And what it means to love people that are near to you, people who are far from you, people that you want to love, people that you don't want to love, people that you don't want to admit that you don't want to love, people that are easy to love, people that are hard to love. And so as Don and I are having this conversation about how do you become a person with a reflex to love first, he said, you might want to just read back through 1 John. And so if you haven't spent a lot of time with the Bible or if it's been a long time since you read 1 John, let me tell you a little bit about it. John is a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the apostles. Matter of fact, in other places in the Bible, he's called the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's also the one that just kind of hangs on the longest. He's the last one to die. And so what happens after Jesus ascends to heaven is that there are all of these rumors and stories about who Jesus is and what Jesus was up to in the world. And some of them are very good and some of them have been captured and some of them were very bad. And so John has all of these people who are new to Jesus, and he's trying to explain to them who Jesus actually is to give a right account of who Jesus is. And so he sits down to write this letter, and it's not really a letter. That's just sort of the church word for it. We call it an epistle, but it's really more of a sermon. And as he begins to tell these people who Jesus really was, he ends up writing a letter about love, Because it turns out that you can't talk about Jesus very long without talking about love. And I think we ought to be very cautious if there's someone who says that they're talking about Jesus, if they can go very long without talking about love. And so as he's getting a good ways into his letter, in chapter 4, He says this, he says, we have experienced and we have entrusted our lives to the love of God in us. God is love. Anyone who lives faithfully in love also lives faithfully in God and God lives in him. So he says, God is love, which isn't new to almost anybody. Like at some point in your life, you have probably heard someone say, you may have said it yourself, you may have read this before, that God is love. And you just kind of wrap your arms around that and say, well, God is love. 
But th- that doesn't really get you very far because what does that mean? What does it mean to love someone? And what does it mean that God is love? But what John wants you to know is that when you, when you strip away everything else, when you take away all of the other attributes of God, all of these powerful and beautiful and meaningful attributes of God, when you get down to the core, the thing that God is, is that God is love. But, but we need some flesh on that. Because almost anyone that you would ever meet or talk to could talk to you about love and say that God is love. And then what they would do is just give back to you their own interpretation, their own definition of what love is. That's not enough. But fortunately, John's talked about this before in what is most likely the most famous passage of Scripture everywhere. In John 3.16, this is what John says that love is. He says, for God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. So God is love. And God's love then is expressed in God sending Jesus so that everybody has everlasting life. And that, that's not news to anybody. Like you've got that already. You probably, when you were a kid in VBS, had to memorize that. You've got that on a magnet at home, maybe a bookmark tucked away someplace. It's not world-changing because you've heard it before. But when a contemporary of John's writes about this same event, this apostle named Peter, This is what Peter says about the same event. He says, you know that a price was paid to redeem you from following the empty ways handed on to you by your ancestors. It was not paid with things that perish like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the anointed who was like a perfect and unblemished sacrificial lamb. God determined to send him before the world began, but he came into the world in these last days for your sake. Through him you've been brought to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him for the very reason that your faith and hope are in him. Now the apostles are telling us something that really ought to reshape and redefine every relationship that we've ever had or will have. Something that's core to who God intends to transform us into becoming. And that if if we haven't gotten our arms around yet, would be the thing that reshapes every interaction ever. And it's these three things. First, that God is love. And God's love sent Jesus into the world to give everlasting life, which a lot of us get and oftentimes stop there. But three, God determined to send Jesus before the world began. Before God creates, before God blesses, before God redeems, before God embodies, God loves first. Before God does anything, 
God loves first. Before God gives law, before the Ten Commandments, before sin, before redemption, before God's selection of Israel as his promised people, before the story of the Hebrews, before the birth of Jesus, before we failed and tried again and failed again, before God does anything, God loves first. And if you want to be a follower of God, the kind of person who emulates God, to call yourself a Jesus follower, for us to be those people, we have to become, we must be transformed into the kind of people who love first. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do about those people or that group who are out there living that lifestyle that you don't like and you don't think is right? What are you going to do when you see that politician or that party on television and you just think they are of the devil? What are you going to do with this adult child of yours who is out living in ways that you deeply believe don't lead to human flourishing and you know that they weren't raised that way? What are you going to do with this wife, this husband, who is driving you insane right now? What are you going to do when you don't know what to do? And I know that for some of us, this is really hard. Because there are people... Like you're, you're not at the beginning of a marriage, you're at the end of one. Or you're dealing with someone in your life because of their own emotional issues or mental issues that it just seems like there's nothing, there's nothing that could work. Like you're just in a chapter of your life where you don't even know what to do next. But I do know this. I think the call of the gospel is for us to ask ourselves in our most tense relationships, in the most difficult chapter, what does love require? What does love require? Because I don't know about you, but I really like to be right. And I really like for things to be easy. Not easy universally, just easy for me. 
But what does love require? Because if God is love, if John is right, then he's also right about this in 1 John 4. He says, my loved ones, let us devote ourselves to loving one another. Love comes straight from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and truly knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So what John is saying is the only authentication that someone, that I know God, that you know God, is love. And if you've been around Christians for about five minutes, you've probably heard someone give a definition of who they think can be a Christian and can't, and what you can do and what you can't. I remember when I was in college, there was this uh, singing group called Point of Grace, and they had a crossover hit, and were on the Today Show, and they sang on the Today Show. And my friend's Jeff Baum saw them on the Today Show, and she saw them and told us the next weekend when we were down visiting, she goes, well, you can't sing about Jesus wearing hot pants. You've known these people? But what John would suggest is that the only authentication that you know God is love. And if you were to meet someone on the street and say to them, well, you can't know God because you don't love, they might say that you're being very harsh but you would be being very honest. That what determines whether or not you or I am a follower of God is our willingness and capacity to love. And I don't know where that lands with you, but for me, that's one of the scariest things in the world because if you look over church history, some crazy things have happened. In the early days, the early first centuries of the church, um, the church was faced with a big problem. Christianity was spreading and spreading and spreading. And how do you teach all of these people who Jesus was? Because you've got two problems. The, the first problem is that hardly anybody could read. That there just weren't very many people who could read at all. And even if they could read, books were extraordinarily expensive. So how do you teach, how do you help people understand who Jesus is? So church leaders got together and they decided, here's what we're going to do. Let's put together um, some statements, what they called creeds, and boil down what it is that's most important about who God is and who Jesus is and the work of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus has done. And maybe we can teach people these creeds and they will kind of get the basics. And so there are some powerful, beautiful, very meaningful creeds in the world, like the, the um, Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And they are wonderful documents that if you don't know them, you really should know them. But here's something else about the creeds. None of them mention love. So the thing that the apostles said was the most crucial, the writers of the creeds, people like me and you, just left out. And I'm the kind of person who can spend their entire life crossing all the T's and dotting every I 
and leave out love. And so here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to go ask you to change the world in the next 20 minutes, but think about this. Who is it in your life when you're being gut-level honest with yourself that you need to love? And what does love require? And I can tell you now that it will be hard and painful. You won't want to do it. But it will be beautiful and reconciling and redeeming. And we are empowered to do this. Because on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, after the meal, he took wine and poured it, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the Apostle John reminds us that this body broken and blood shed is God's love expressed. Let me pray for you. God, help us be people who seek to love first in all we say and do. God, in times of difficulty and in times of great joy, that we would form a reflex, that we would be formed by you to become the kind of people who exude love in everything and to everyone. Something we can only do, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the name of Jesus, whom we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.